Hello SFIA audio listeners, in this month's Nebula exclusive, Giant Space Monsters, we'll take a look at what sorts of alien behemoths might be possible under known science. To hear it and every episode early and ad-free, plus hours of bonus content, check out go.nebula.tv slash IsaacArthur and use my code IsaacArthur. Welcome to our August monthly livestream, we'll be getting started in just a moment so if you've got questions go ahead and start putting those in the chat window so I and the moderators can pull them out Welcome and get to, to our August month- <laughs> Sorry about that, I forgot to turn the audio off on my end of things. Um, interesting side note, uh, it's where you start things off, there's always some glitch. All the time when you're like listening to a radio show there's always this lag time and they always tell people turn off your radio when you're talking so you know just listen on your phone. So otherwise you get this large lag and echo going on. Anyway, welcome to today's show and uh, hopefully that will be our only glitch for today and uh, we'll go ahead and get started with questions. Nomis Cassio asks, could global warming, uh, man-made or natural, change planet Earth into a place acquiring space age technology um, just to survive? I'm thinking no breathable atmosphere or high radiation, etc. And by the way, Sindri, can you check real quick and just confirm that the uh, audio is not looping anymore or echoing? That I actually got that fixed on my end real quick, just put it in the text. Okay, um, in regard to global warming just in general with uh, any time you're dealing with the possibility of warming the atmosphere up by changing the chemical properties of it, it's not just carbon dioxide that could do things like that. In fact, carbon dioxide is not actually all that good of a greenhouse gas. There are a bunch of other ones we actually talk about using on uh, for tail for me, and we'll actually talk about some of those more for our episode on Mars in a couple of weeks, and uh, also for Venus. And we'll discuss some of the ways to cool plant down on the episode uh, Winter on Venus, which I think is in October. But uh, just in general, I would say anytime you're trying to go for a really high-tech, industrialized civilization, if you want to be able to use all that energy up and do all that automation, other cool things, and keep a large population. Yeah, you're going to need to start talking about the the flux of light you get to the planet. You're going to need to know how to control your weather and things like that if you can. And uh, you know, fundamentally, almost all of our light comes from the sun. Almost almost all of our energy comes from the sun right now. You have a tiny amount of it from the moon, uh, not so much as reflection, but the tidal the force it generates on the Earth and from some nuclear decay in the core. But almost all of it's from the sun right now. If we ever get something like fusion or if we get things like power satellites to take advantage of the sun's fusion, then we're going to need to be able to start dealing with potential large influx of heat. Now, as to actually blowing our own atmosphere off, that one's really not in the cards. Um, uh, and in fact, in Winter on Venus, we talk about how, how much energy you need to blow the atmosphere off a planet. And uh, it is more for Venus than it is for Earth. But uh, not the sort of thing you do on accident, and uh, not the sort of thing you could actually get done while that planet was still livable either, where you would you'd end up dying before you could ever actually get to the point that you knock the atmosphere off. Um, actually, same thing for getting rid of the oceans. Uh, there's a book series, uh, actually there's 40k, they talk about uh, how Earth in the 40,000, year 40,000 doesn't have any oceans left because they all got blown off into space. I so, say, well... Maybe they export them off to space colony habitats in their own uh, local area, or they just slowly use the water up for you know fuel. But no, you don't nuke you don't nuke the planet so hard the oceans blow off unless you've utterly sterilized that planet so thoroughly that not even a micro micro could, could live. Um, all right, let's go to our next question. Uh, Dave Brown asks. All the pupils of pupils of our eyes like black holes, as in all the light, and therefore information is kept, not reflected. Um, just interested. Um, you know, you'd actually have to ask an optometrist exactly what the wavelengths are that we absorb. I'm not actually going to see an optometrist. Funny story about that. <laughs> um, but uh, so I managed to bang my glasses with an assault rifle yesterday. Very strange story. Um, but uh, you do not have total reflectional absorption on your eyeballs. You wouldn't be able to see your eyeballs if you... Uh, you know, totally absorbed there, you wouldn't be able to see the pupils, which are black in the uh, visible range, but I do not think they are in the infrared or even I say the UV range. You'd have to check that though. Very few things are totally reflective across all, you know, very, very wide gap of uh, wavelengths and uh, very few things are totally absorptive either. Something that is actually completely absorptive is what we call a black body, a perfect black body. And uh, things like stars, for instance, are, are actual black bodies. They haven't emit a lot of light, but uh, they, they absorb pretty much everything that hits them. Um, but, uh, 
you do obviously absorb a lot into the the cones of your eyes and the rods of your eyes and then more on just the general matter since uh, other things are absorbing them they're not just transmitting in the information to your brain but no i wouldn't think they'd be completely reflective but again you'd have to actually check what the i'm sure somebody's measured what the reflectivity of eyeballs are with the various wavelengths uh it's next question Kurt Swanson asks, what kind of first world problems do you think people will be complaining about in the future? No, it's, the problem with trying to anticipate, when we say something like that, what we mean is things that we wouldn't think of as a problem 50 years ago and probably think of somebody as kind of whiny for even worrying about at that time. You're almost never going to be able to predict those because the whole point of those is that we don't think of them as problems now and they, they kind of emerge as that. And, and some can be kind of silly and certainly phrase kind of silly. Others actually can be a lot more of a concern. Um... You know, I, I, w- I don't think it's going to be what we call a first world problem that will hit the developed nations probably first and hardest is when you start getting automation that uh, starts cutting into not just manufacturing, which is already uh, you know problematic, but uh, we start getting into a lot of the uh, office jobs. Um, there are a lot of things that we automate in the office, and we've been doing that, you know, for a long time anyway, um, slowly uh, altering what people actually do in terms of their work uh, load at an office so that more and more of it gets automated. Like you're not going to find the editors that actually do spell checking much these days. Um, nobody actually works on a physical spreadsheet. But uh, I would probably say in, in the kind of the post scarcity sense, which I, I don't know if you would call that first world, maybe zeroth world problems, uh, boredom, purpose. That those are the ones we used to talk about in post scarcity episode. And of course, the big one being privacy. Um, and I don't think that one would be something most of us would think of. I don't think any of us would think of any of those three as being. Uh, you know, illegitimate problems. Um, you know, you, if you have nothing to do with your life, uh, or if you, you know, which is a possibility, or you feel you lack a purpose, or if you feel your privacy is being invaded and you live in a uh, fish tank, then, then yeah, um, you know, those are the kind of problems I think we'll have to deal with most in the near future. And well, the near future in the next couple of centuries. And if we haven't figured it out by then, then we got long-term issues. So, uh, let's see. Perfect Anime asks, you say always to the Fermi Paradox Solutions, not everyone does that, but couldn't different sieves have different reasons to not expand, or even different groups inside the same sieve? Absolutely. I mean, the, one of the reasons why we always talk about exclusivity as an issue, that the whole idea there that not everyone does that, is because um, you're kind of the biological default, uh, and you would expect this in any any system that ran on Darwinian evolution, which presumably is almost you know any one that naturally occurs. Um, is to try to expand and reproduce and, you know, grow it and to use more resources and, and live better. Um, and uh, you need a good reason why they're not doing that if they can and if they can without it being too hard. Um, you know, I don't think colonizing another planet's ever going to be the easiest thing in the world or colonizing another solar system because the focus really is not on planets. But at the same hand, you have to find a reason why nobody is doing that in that civilization or any of the other civilizations. Um, so they could have hundreds of reasons why they don't leave Earth. And, um, you know, many of them do sound good because they're going to apply most time. Somebody says, well, Isaac, would you like to go colonize another planet? I say, no, no, no I don't want to. I mean, maybe if I had a ability to just make a duplicate of myself, we'd, you know, do that and flip a coin to see who went on the journey and who stayed behind. But I have no desire to leave Earth. Um, and I don't think most people do. But you're always going to have a lot of folks who do want to. You know, uh, while colonization pioneering things are rarely run by, you know, what most people feel like doing if they have a choice in it. It's But there's always a number of people who either feel forced in the past or just kind of driven to do it. Um, and I mean, I would argue that's probably a pretty pretty fundamental psychological thing to humans and probably almost any species that would be following that path is to kind of want to go leave the tribe and set up your own new tribe where everyone's got a new, 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 new hierarchy to populate as it were. Um, let's see. That's probably very cued into, you know, wander y'all, wanderlust that a lot, you know, we tend to have built into us and a lot of mammals have built into them. Um, Red Vulture asks, uh, how big does a fellow YouTube channel have to be for you to consider a collab? Huh. I don't have a set number and I actually genuinely do not look. I'll go watch a few episodes of, uh, you know, peek in and take a look if anyone suggests or if I see a channel I like the look of. Um, but uh, just in general, I don't like to, I look at more the quality of it. I probably would expect them to be at least in thousands uh, to do a collab, but it's more that I, I would want them to have, you know, if I'm doing a collab with someone that I have to be, feel really inspired and want to work with them, where I have to feel like the audience is going to really enjoy their show. And if they're 
only got a couple episodes out, then I'm not really sending my audience over to see much yet. So I'm going to tell them, you know, come on back when you've got more episodes and ask me then. But uh, there's no real size limit. Um, I do probably more collabs with channels smaller than mine than bigger than mine. Um, and uh, I think probably the only people I've done collabs with that were bigger were uh, Curious Droid and, and Cody's Lab. Um, and, uh, you know, it's it's YouTubers in the science game are actually a lot of fun to work with in general. So that's that's a big majority of it. But so long as I feel like the channel is offering something that my audience is going to enjoy and, and there's a good amount of that content then, and then there's a basis for a decent collab on the topic, then yeah, I'm going to do something with them. It's not a big deal how big their channel is. Um, let's see. Black Phantom asks, Hi Isaac, I know you're more optimistic, but do you think humanity could go extinct in the near future or do you think it's rather unlikely? I think it's very unlikely that we'd actually go extinct um, with uh, with the exception of a successor kind of case. As we say in the in fully paradox apocalypse episodes, the, uh, the idea isn't that an AI might not kill us all off. That's a possibility. Or that some, you know, genetically augmented or modified humans or cyborgs might not kill us all off. Is that from a fully paradox standpoint, it doesn't matter because you just replace them with something that's also smart and aggressive. And, you know, when we say aggressive, I mean expansionist. They, they want to get out there and do stuff, uh, not necessarily they're violent. Um, though if they wiped everybody out, that's probably the case. Um, but I mean, as to humanity going extinct, again, a lot of that depends on what you mean by going extinct. Uh, I think did we either did an episode on that recently or have one coming up soon on that subject of, you know, what, what, what you really would afford to as humans if we'll still be around in, you know, a, a few centuries even, or, you know, a million years. And there are things you could do to specifically maintain the current human template. Uh, you can prevent mutation if you can do mutation, uh, intentionally. Um, so, but I think that you're just going to see humans kind of diversify off from each other in the future in terms of a million different types of, you know, subcategories. And, uh, there's no guarantee of that, but one could argue at that point in time that classic humanity as a world were extinct, but I don't, I don't know that I call that extinct. That's like saying that you've got extinct because your kids survived and they're not the same as you. Well, they're not the same as you. Every generation renders the previous one extinct. So unless it's a very sharp type of, uh, you know, extinction than and, you know, these really gradual ones. I don't think that really qualifies. Um, but it's possible. I just don't see it happening, to be honest. I don't see us getting wiped out in a way that sterilizes the planet. Um, Colby Smith asks, is there any way civs could survive past the last black hole evaporating? Uh, you know, even when we get to the point of talking about supermassive black holes evaporating, I always feel obliged to stress that works on paper. Uh, you have to find some way to make a structure that's going to survive all that time sipping off the most tiny amounts of energy. Uh, and then it gets a nice big boost of energy towards the end uh, as, the, as the black hole starts to uh, to evaporate and get, um, you know, much hotter and produce much more energy. Um, but our Ion Stars episode, I was going to say the Ion Stars episode specifically looks at that, but the kind of the idea behind the Ion Star is that it does eventually collapse into a black hole some ridiculous period of time down the road. And uh, I do not think that the, that that context, I don't think that anything that we could use besides black holes that would still be around after all the black holes, including the ones that were from Ion Stars had evaporated. Outside of that kind of Boltzmann reset of a, uh, sorry, a point care reset like we talked about in Boltzmann Brains and some of the other episodes where we talk about uh, a non-expanding universe, a steady state universe where it just, you know, shuffles so many times it eventually gets back to a reset. Um, you know, entropy in a truly closed system eventually causes a reset if the process all able to reset like that. You shuffle a deck of cards enough times it will come back to the original order. It's just the number of times you have to shuffle it is ridiculously huge. Um... Gordon Desmond asks, will you ever do a time travel episode? We did do a time travel episode. That was the uh, FTL series from way back in year two. Uh, episode two was Tachyons on Time Travel. And then we looked at it a little bit more in the, uh, was it the Wormholes episode? or the Yeah, we're in the Wormholes episode that was FTL episode four. But we might do an episode more specifically on time travel. The FTL series is one of those uh, ones where I'm, I'm particularly inclined to want to redo it because it was very badly produced in my mind and there's more I could say on all those things so um but uh usually I won't redo an episode unless I feel like I you know if there's another episode that is calling out to be rewritten on a topic we haven't done before that's going to take priority over doing a redo or expansion usually um 
Aeonautics Engineer asks, will you do a rigorous look on the great filter, like making everything not 50-50? Um, we actually do have another great filter episode uh, coming up uh, that I just finished writing the draft for. It'll be early November, mid-November. Um, no, early November. And uh, actually, no, it's going to come out on Halloween. Thursday is uh, October 31st. But um, we haven't gone back to that series in about two years, and I thought it would be time to kind of follow it up and what we're going to do, rare technology as a topic instead of we've done rare earth, space and time, rare intelligence, now we're going to do rare technology. Um, but uh, the problem when we're doing like the lesser filters, the ones we say are 50-50 is, those are almost all things where we just don't know what the answer is. There's a few other things in, in, in Drake's equation um, or components of, of the actual variables if you break it down more that we can put a pretty decent number to these days and, and better than we could say 20 years ago or 30 years ago in terms of like exoplanets and metallicity of stars. Um, and, uh, you know, with with uh, more time, we might be able to nail those down more. But many of these, it, it's going to be a long time before we ever say something is 47% instead of 50 or 53 or whatever, or even 1 in 10. And, you know, there's such a huge margin of error that we talk about in terms of it being 50-50 just because it keeps the math easy to show how you can take uh, 50 factors and say 2 to the 50th, which is about a quadrillion. Uh, which is about how many stars we think would be in the value of a space we could plausibly have expected to see life arise in and still have gotten light from it. Um, you know, somebody 3 billion light years away that evolved 2.9 billion years ago to be in a galactic civilization, we can't see them yet. And you can see at a certain point you say, well, the universe would just be too young for life to have emerged then uh, in a sophisticated way. And you can say, well, maybe not, but then if it was that it was able to, you know, arise even that early, then that's all the more reason to think the universe would be chocked full of life because, you know, if something could randomly evolve 4 billion years into the universe instead of 4 billion years ago, then that should have happened a bunch more times. Uh, thank you, Kalganus came, uh, Games Play. Uh, how do you think languages will evolve as humanity journeys outward, creoles, language families, etc., etc.? Um... You know, that is a, such a tricky one. I think that you would generally tend to converge to having a set language that was the lingua franca, not the only language, I don't think, but the lingua franca for any given system, um, but not for a planet. Um, and I do not know that you necessarily have the same ones on other solar systems. You're talking about like a galactic humanity, you probably would have some really ancient language that almost nobody actually used used that was in everybody's computer banks that they you know some scholars updated to their system to make sure it matched up so that all the ships and plants could talk to each other but um i you know i don't uh i don't really see a really connected society going to branch out to having more languages that were their main language they used at the same time i don't think people would really let go of their language and order i think that's the best idea um you know this comes up with languages a lot they are thinking advantages to being bilingual you know, if you're just a little bit bilingual and they are concepts that don't express the same in other languages they, they don't have a direct translation um they're not concepts that can't translate into the other language but they're you know not that one word with all that meaning you know euphemisms things like that do not translate worth worth it all um but uh, kind of the same thing that applies with like standardization of, um, of uh, measurement systems. Why I always complain about the metric system. Metric system is a very good system. Uh, well, SI is better, but same thing really. Um, as uh, systems go, but when you only use one system, you, you tend to introduce a lot of uh, thinking limitations and problems. Um, and uh, so I'm not really a huge, you know, huge one for pushing for uh, more standardization of our system units. You know, I don't really want to refer to the distance to Alpha Centauri in uh, gigameters or uh, terameters instead of light years. Um, and uh, those kind of natural units are a lot easier to work with. And say something like, well, why do you always list ships in terms of their tonnage or how many aircraft carriers they are? I say, well, because people know how big an aircraft carrier is. Um, they can picture that and wrap their head around it quickly. If I just tell them how many kilograms it weighs or, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, you know, volume in cubic meters, people are not, or cubic feet for that matter, people are not really absorbing it the same way. Oh, uh, let's see. Scientifically, literally asked, though many say it's impossible due to the square cube law, do you think a skyscraper-sized Godzilla-like superspecies, kaiju, could be created in the future with advanced future technologies? Once you start actually breaking out of natural evolution, there's a lot of stuff you could do. You could get things, you know, we have buildings that big, so yes, we have machinery that big. In fact, I've seen some gigantic cranes. Um, 
I don't know that you would ever have any particular reason to want to do that. Uh, it seems almost like if you're trying to just make something much bigger, you could start doing more of a distributed network where it had its brain possibly moving around or set a stationary location and lots of little drones controlled by Y or, you know, instead of having one big body, you have several kind of connected bodies. Um, but yeah, I mean, there are materials that could be involved in organic or quasi-organic processes that would let you get away with building something that big, but you wouldn't expect something like that to evolve naturally on a planet like Earth. Low gravity may be a little bit different. Um, though you start having issues with could it even get enough air or could it cover enough distance to feed itself, you know, because it's going to have a rising energy cost. But there are advantages to size and advantages to being much smaller too, so it kind of it varies. And it actually can vary a lot based on what the, what the current uh, climate of the planet is, the ecology of the planet, and what the current predator-prey cycles look like too. Uh, File Dragon asks, do you think certain government systems will be more advantageous or appealing in an advanced civilization? Um, hmm, no, um, uh, you know, it kind of depends on what you mean by advanced. Um, there are a lot of different governmental systems people tend not even, even remember to think about. Like, uh, people argue sometimes the United States, are we a democracy or a republic? And that these two are not the least bit exclusionary. It's like asking, is that apple red or shiny? It's, it's not the same thing. There's a little bit of overlap. And they forget that we're actually a crytalky too. A crytalky is where you have rule by judges. And of course, the uh, third branch of government, the judicial branch, uh, that, you know, whether it's elected or whether that's appointed positions. And like in Ohio, we elect all judges, but at the federal level, we appoint them. Some states appoint too. And that's a cry talkie, but it doesn't prevent you from being democracy, you know. Um, same, you could argue that we are a gerontocracy, right? Rule by the elderly, uh, as we do almost always, you know, not officially, but unofficially. And unofficial is just as important when you get around to it, uh, tend to prefer folks who are older in, in positions of power. Um, so, you know, you've got, even if there were like six or seven primary systems people tended to favor, you know, as both the official and unofficial ones, there are so many different combinations of those, and, you know, in terms of both which ones you use the most and which one is your primary official one, and, you know, you 20% one and, and 15% another, or are you 21% and 14% of those two, and so that produces a almost infinite diversity of potential options, um, and, uh, I think the one that you always have that mix of tradition, local usage, who screws things up. Like if you have a very good system, but you end up, you know, throwing the dice bad on getting a really bad leader or a very bad system, like you have a monarchy. Well, I shouldn't say a monarchy is a bad system, but uh, if you have an absolute monarchy and um, you have a really, really good king, and then you have another really, really good one following him up um, for a couple of generations like that then people are going to think very well of that system. Um, whereas in another place, they might be all for democracy, but, uh, you know, elect a series of uh, very corrupt or bad folks in there and, and get a negative view of it. So factors like that are just going to be too huge of a, a, a thing in that to really be able to say, this is the system that's going to get preferred. And we'll find out in the future, or maybe someone will get really, really good at uh, sociology in terms of a, as a, you know, very predictable science. We'll say, this is the best one, but I, I don't see that one on the radar anytime soon. I tend to think in the future, you just have uh, more and more branching off and more and more variations. Possibly even some new systems getting discovered. You know, there's always room to add more. There are like a million aquacies and archetypes out there. Um, Cubium asks, question, do you think space colonization will be mostly planet bases or orbital habitats? Um, orbital habitats, uh, not just because, you know, they are, uh, they have certain advantages over trying to terraform an entire planet, but the simple fact that you can make so many more of them. Any medium-sized asteroid you would never even consider trying to terraform, uh, in a classic sense can be turned into, you know, a number of habitats with a very similar living area to that big old planet. And there's always going to be a lot more medium-sized asteroids than planets in the system. Uh, thank you, Andy Smith. Healing radiation, healing rays like in Star Trek, total BS or even remotely possible. Also, congrats on 200 episodes. I hope there will be 2,000 more. I hope so, too. Well, actually, I'm not sure. Uh, 2,000 more episodes would take us, what, uh, 40 years. And uh, I'd be quite happy to be still doing this in 40 years uh, when I will be well, some other age. Um, but uh, one would think that things would change a lot between now and then, you know. Uh, so and maybe I, I want to switch over to something else, who knows. But right now I'm loving this, so it's great. As to, um, you know, just being a beam healing energy at someone, it's really popular in um, 
in sci-fi in TV shows and movies. And I think part of that is, is uh, just because it's, it's a very fast way of showing something. You know, they can do very easy on special effects. They put down the, uh, the um, damaged area uh, that, you know, that's been makeup on of a cut and they, you know, shine a bright light on it and they can do a quick cut, take, pull that off and unshine the light on. And you do, know, oh, look, it's gone. Special effects have a tendency to uh, to alter what our view of what is possible or likely. As to being able to do that, no, no. I mean, you should be able to do some stuff with magnetic and electric fields that would help to some degree uh, with certain types of things. You know, like there's iron in your blood and they can get clotting that way that might be helped with magnets. Oh, uh, so I gather ask a doctor, not me. I'm not a doctor. <laughs> so, but I've never seen any any inventions that seem like they do that. Um, anything like what you see with the Star Trek, uh, you know, little healers they went over people. Um, Tommy Vass asks, how important is the tilt of a planet's access to life as we know it? Very important. Is the eccentricity of Earth's orbit beneficial in any way? What might the Goldilocks zone be regarding these parameters? Um, <clears throat> you know, when you start getting to elliptical orbits, you are actually going to change your Goldilocks zone uh, a goodly amount because things can survive through a, you know, a winter that's based on elliptical orbits as opposed to tilt. Um, and uh, have you know warmer summers and survive those. But if you have two elliptical orbits, it's it's going to be problematic because you too much more temperature variation. Uh, Earth is pretty close to circular as these things go. There are some plants that have a slightly more circular orbit than us, but we're not very eccentric. Um, and it kind of kind of surprises people sometimes. To say, well, when is the Earth closest to the Sun? And uh, probably doesn't surprise people from the southern hemisphere, but it's actually in January. We are closest to the sun and hottest as a planet in January. Um, very little of our seasonal variation comes from that distance. Uh, the light falls off as the inverse square. So if you are twice far away, you're getting a quarter of the light. Um, and uh, we don't get anything near that, but that would be the issue if you had that much of an ellipse. Um, the tilt is the biggest one. And... Uh, you know, if you don't have a, any tilt to your planet, I don't think that that would prevent life arising, but it would certainly have a huge factor on our life. Our life is very built around a kind of a famine feast approach on an annual schedule. Everything breeds and reproduces and then stores up energy around those winter times. And of course, that's a lot more um, severe, a lot more noticeable of an impact as you get further away from the equator. Um, so life as we know it, very different. And, and you have to think about some of the evolutionary factors that would kick in there too. If all of a sudden, you know, you hadn't had that requirement to be good at saving up and storing energy because crops just grew constantly, um, you know, food just grew constantly and everything was constantly flowering on bloom. That's going to change your, you know, your build up, your psychology, your biology, your physiology, everything. It's a very fundamental level. But not in a way that I would think of as being exclusive to life, although one could argue challenges like storing up food, which was a big thing for humanity's rise in terms of technology, might actually be very important to uh, to life evolving to complexity and, and sophistication. Uh, <clears throat> let's see. Uh, next question, then we'll go to break. Uh, Draft Flooring asks, question, do you think an increase in available land because of space habitats will cause a collapse in the value of real estate on Earth? No. Now, quite to the contrary, I would expect uh, the poverty values on Earth to just keep rising. Um, assuming we follow out to a kind of Atlantic expansion model, as we often tend to think about, uh, either in a space opera sense of planets or the one we tend to look at here, which is more the Kalshev 2 space habitats one, Earth is always going to be the most valuable real estate out there. Uh, even if you, you know, turn the place into a wasteland somehow and, and couldn't fix that, it would still be valuable because it's Earth. Um, but... Uh, you know, you might see a luxury market for habitats going up into space, to be sure. And that might uh, limit some of the luxury markets in some of the places like the Gold Coast or the, uh, the Gold Coast of Chicago, not, not, not Africa. Um, but uh, in places where like, you know, like Martha's Vineyard, where lands were very expensive, that might shift up to space for a while. But I think you'd always had the highest real estate values on Earth, other than an initial phase when, you know, the space habitats were complete luxury because they were very hard for us to build or very new. Um, but it's kind of the same for the metals market. You say if we suddenly find trillions of tons of gold in space, we'll collapse the market and say, well, to to two degree, it will shrink it temporarily, but then it'll expand because people find new use for it. And now it's less scarce. All right, let's go ahead and go to break. I'll see you in a minute. While we are taking a quick break, it's a good chance to get some questions in for our moderators to grab and forward to me. And if you want to increase the odds, it will get answered and be nice to our mods. Try to keep it clear and concise, and watch the typos. However, we won't get to every question, 
and normally I come back in a while after the live stream to watch the replay and to answer any questions left in the comments. After today's show though, we will also be having a Discord live chat on the SFIA Discord server, linked in the video description. Though we do ask everyone to enable the push to talk option and respect everyone else there. Which is to say, if you have already asked a question, try to let others get theirs in before asking another, and don't talk over top of other people, especially when they are asking a question or I'm trying to reply to it. You can also stick questions and replies in the text channel attached to the audio chat. Again though, please remember to go into your settings on Discord and change them to the push to talk before joining the conversation. Also, we've rolled out some more SFIA merchandise to join our mugs, t-shirts, and tote bags. By popular demand we've added some hats, and you can find those at our website, IsaacArthur.net, on the Merchandise tab next to the Donate tab. And of course, you're welcome to click on that Donate tab too to help support the show. Or click over to our Books tab to see any of the many novels we've recommended over the years. I also want to take a quick moment to congratulate my dear friends Jason and Christina on their wedding yesterday. Jason and I met about a month after we both got back from serving in Iraq a decade back, and he's become one of my closest friends since, and while he's never shown up in our credit roll, he is one of my original sounding boards for the show, and one of those guys I wish we could clone because everyone could use a friend like him. Sadly, he's one of a kind, and so is Christina, and I'm so glad they found each other because you'd have to search near and far to find two kinder and more loyal people, and I count myself very lucky to know them both, and I hope you'll join me in wishing them all the best in their journey together. And now, back to the show. Okay, I'm back. I'm going to put my hat on. I got back from that wedding yesterday I was just talking about and uh, found the prototype in the mail, those are actually up on Signal now, um, yeah, and you can get them at the website as we mentioned, but uh, I like it. So <laughs> somebody had asked on the Facebook forum if we could please get some hats in, and I always keep meaning to expand our merchandise, but I, I tend to get, uh, you know, priorities other things I always focus on writing the episodes first. Um, so a lot of the other administrative expansion things which we're doing to grow the channel get kind of left behind and forgotten about and put on the back burner. Okay. Yuriko uh, Roboto asks, apart from enthusiasm for science and futurism and writing talent, what is the most useful skill to have when making your YouTube videos? It's nice to see if I have skill for writing talent. I don't think myself as a very good writer. Um, hmm. What is the most useful skill to have besides being enthusiastic at it and decent at writing it? Probably being a workaholic. <laughs> uh, it can be very time consuming and, you know, it, you're going to start off as a hobby, you know, and uh, it's... Uh, and it's going to be very time consuming when it stops being a hobby and becomes a profession too if you do that. Um, you know, you got to really be willing to sit down and just work on stuff for 80 hours a week, things like that. Uh, most useful skill. Uh, hmm. Yeah, I don't know. It's going to vary so much from channel to channel. Um, whatever it is, you got to be yourself on these things. So we talk about that sometimes when we're chatting with other channels. Um you know, when you're an actor on TV, you're pretending to be somebody else. When you're doing live radio or podcasts or YouTube, you are yourself. Uh, even in the written format, obviously the episodes are scripted, but, uh, um, you know, that's still you doing the writing on that and that's still you doing the speaking. Um, and, uh, you know, if you're not trying to play to your own actual strengths and trying to cover over your own weaknesses as opposed to like putting on some kind of mask or persona, you're not going to do very well, I don't think. Um, so that is actually one of the nice things, though, is almost every channel I bump into, because they're like that, they're always really fun and interesting people to chat with. So uh, one of the reasons somebody asked me about doing collabs, I always like doing collabs because they're always really just fun people to uh, watch and get to know. Uh, it's Unholy7 asks, uh, what do you think will be the next step for mathematics? Example, Newton's introduction of calculus. Huh. I don't know what the next one would be, probably the most important one, if we can work with it, would actually probably be chaos theory, because um, there's so many things that being able to predict those better, I mean, weather being the biggest obvious example. If we had accurate weather prediction, not say control, although we'd be able to develop control if we had accurate prediction because we'd know where to nudge. Um, you know, that's one of those things where it doesn't really get talked about, but the, the economic impact, uh, the quality of life impact, the environmental impact of knowing exactly 
what the weather's going to be months out is huge. Um, I, you know, that would be one of those inventions where it just fundamentally altered the landscape. Um, and chaos theory is one of those ones that would be really, really handy for that. Um, obviously, it'd be really handy for anything involving predictions of human systems. Uh, you're never going to be able to create a perfectly predictive system or anything like what Asimov's got for psychohistory, but short term forecasting of a lot of things would be very helpful. Uh, <clears throat> Humble snake oil salesman asks, <laughs> I'm sure I've mentioned this before, but you guys have the most interesting usernames. Um, it's actually the joke on the channel is I almost always used a pseudonym before I uh, started the channel whenever I was on any board or things like that, but uh, I just was using my own regular Gmail account to upload random videos like a picture of a squirrel or uh, you know, recording of the raccoon that always hangs out in here. And uploading those just my little site that said Isaac Arthur on, on my YouTube page like anyone else has, and uh, that just accidentally turned into a channel, and that's why the channel is actually named that. Um, people just call calling it science and futurism, and you know, so we just said science and futurism with Isaac Arthur, and I've got the W when I was doing the logo, so it's SFIA instead of SFWIA. <laughs> that's a mouthful anyway. Um, humble Snake Oils, uh, Hoyle. Humble snake oil salesman asks, do you think biosignatures will ever amount to conclusive proof of ET or even primitive life in other solar systems? Conclusive is such a uh, subjective term. Um, you know, like oxygen in the atmosphere, a high concentration of oxygen in the atmosphere is a very strong indicator of it. And the higher it is, the, the more likely you say that. And then you start zooming on that planet and seeing other things that would, that would be more indicative of... of uh, a biological reason for that high oxygen as opposed to something geological or temporary. You start finding tons of plants like that though, you know, it's not temporary. It's it's something that, uh, you know, either happens periodically everywhere from some non-biological fact or it's, uh, it's you know, a really big marker of biology. I, I really doubt the first time we put a satellite in orbit around a, another planet or do even a flyby of another planet, which is much easier. Um, another planet, another source that we think has life on it. I very much doubt that we'll be in doubt that there's life there. It would just be confirmation at that point. Um, but I mean, we'll have to see. And, and in terms of like, we say complex life, of course, you know, like technological life, then absolutely, yeah. Um, that is uh, one of those things where you're not really looking for biosignatures at that point in time, but you might actually spot the biosignatures first because. Uh, our radio frequencies are easy enough to pick up if we know what to look for, but a planet reflects, you know, a typical radio signal is a megawatt tops. That, that those are all very loud radio signals. Of course, most are nowhere near that strong. Uh, whereas a planet gives off what, 10 to 17, so uh, about 100 billion times stronger of a signal overall in various, principally, you know, the, the spectrum. It's not a very discrete one, but. Uh, in a, you know, a zone that we can see a lot easier. So it's almost always going to be easier to look for those kind of signatures first. Um, Zhao Wu asks, do you consider writing fictions, novels, or comic books? If yes or no, I'm curious about the reason. Uh, I do think about it occasionally, and of course, partially that's because everybody pokes me to write a book at some point. If we do write a book for the channel, and it probably would be we, because I'm, I'm sure I would call on the crew to help out with that. There are actually quite a few very published, you know, good and published authors but that help out on the show. Um, it would probably be a nonfiction first, and I, I think by default, the one that most pops in my head is do a kind of a long, you know, explanation of the Fermi paradox in book format. But um, yeah, I mean, I, I think about writing fiction occasionally. I love helping out on, uh, you know, when people put together video games, uh, things like that. Uh, you know, what's what are we going to do with the plot or things like that. But I don't think of myself as a good character dialogue reader, and that's not humility. That's that's a fact. I'm a very bad at writing dialogue. Um. And, uh, you know, I tend to feel like with a story, you, I, some people work really well with a co-author who could, you know, cover their weaknesses on something like that. But there really are not that many uh, writing partnerships that turn out all that well. Um, in fact, a lot of times you see it's a very established author who has a new, you know, a, a less known author who's helping to write the book or e.g. almost entirely writes the book. And they put the bigger author's name on it because they didn't really have time to work on it as much. Uh, but uh, you do get some decent writing partnerships. Uh, Margaret Weiss and Tracy Hickman would be an example of that. But uh, I wouldn't want to write a fictional novel uh, with somebody else working with me on it unless they were, I mean, besides the editor, obviously, unless they were, um, you know, really well synced up with me. And, and until I have, you know, changed and feel like I'd write dialogue better or, you know, really found that partner, which I'm really not looking for, then I know I would not be reading fictional books. 
uh, helping other folks out with ideas. That is something we ask you fairly regularly. And I have a increasingly large collection of, of books. People have, uh, you know, uh, written credits to, uh, you know, thanking you know, the show for their help on it. But, uh, and I'm very smug about that collection. Um, but that's about it for right now for me involving myself in fiction. Um, let's see. If a civilization... Uh, a Clover asks, if a civilization starts star lifting from the start of expansion, could you massively extend a galaxy's lifespan? Magic, uh, so to speak. Uh, star lifting, again, is used for extending the lifespan of stars by removing helium and other higher elements that kind of poison that fusion process so it can't burn up all its hydrogen. And uh, why we like red dwarfs is because they they are fully convective uh, in that they store up their contents and they will go through all of their hydrogen. Um, eventually, it'll take them a very, very long time to do it. Whereas our sun will burn up like about a tenth of its naturally before it goes red giant and dies. And uh, the more massive stars is even even less of a percentage. Um, and by star lifting them, you can also make them lighter too, so they they are fusing you know cooler and and longer as a result. So you can really enhance the lifespan of a star by removing those uh, elements. And of course, those heavier elements can also be really handy for construction. I don't know what you do with helium besides just using it as dumb mass to, uh, you know, like make an artificial planet with natural gravity or use it as shielding, you know, um, stick it in the core of a shell and use it for gravity or stick it in the uh, outer superstructure of a rotating habitat as radiation shielding. That, that's the only things I can think to do with helium. But you get further up that chain to things like carbon. Yeah, absolutely. You can always find a use for stuff like that. Um, there's far more construction material in the sun uh, in terms of heavier elements than the rest of the solar system combined. Um, and so I think if you did start doing star lifting, yeah, absolutely. You'd have people start managing stars. You, you know, you know, you're mining that star for materials while simultaneously expanding its life. And I think that that would be very popular. The question is whether or not they keep star lifting until they actually drop that star down to being a, a minimum red dwarf, minimum mass one, about a, you know, a tenth of the mass of our sun, or even just kept you know taking it apart further until it was just like a brown dwarf or something like that. And that's that's really hard to say because that would just come down way too much to the economics and the specific technology they had in play. Billy Hollywood asks, could all galaxy be destroyed? Um, you know, when you're talking about something natural, trying to, and not natural in the sense that life form is, where it's a very complex, evolved system, um, when you start talking about destruction, that, that's a dubious term. You could certainly redistribute the galaxy, like we were just talking about star lifting a moment ago. You can use that same technology to move stars around. Um, our galaxy has eaten tons of smaller galaxies. It's in the process of consuming a few that have been, you know, that's been working on for millions of years, and it will eat some more before the uh, it merges with the other, you know. A uh, dozen or so galaxies nearest us uh, in the local cluster, um, local group, and uh, becomes one big merged galaxy. But yeah, you could destroy a galaxy, but you know, again, in what way? Uh, are you dumping all that mass into a black hole? That's not necessarily destruction. It's like saying, I, I destroy this mountain to turn it into a whole bunch of stone fortresses or something like that. Um, let's see. Xanth2 asks, what are your thoughts on technologically mediated telepathy? Not that many, actually. Um, you know, you if you have good enough uh, mind augmentation or Neuralink type stuff, and actually that's an episode we got in October too, um, um, mind machine interfaces, then you can develop something like telepathy very easily. Um, you know, it's just radio at that point, though. And, uh, and in some ways, that's like saying that speech is telepathy. It's a way to communicate thoughts to other people, and but it's at a very baseline rate. And you think about um, the bandwidth of speech, uh, and, and I mean, well, I say, let's start with the bandwidth of text. Bandwidth of text is less than a kilobyte a second, uh, way less. In fact, it's more like bits per second. Um, normal speech is in the kilobytes per second range, though, because you've got so much intonation of voice. And of course, it's all shorthand. You know, it's a compressed um, medium. You, you have words and concepts and euphemisms that convey way more information than the raw textbook uh, dictionary definition of those words. And of course, those definitions are a lot more than one word. Uh, and when I say something like um, cat, there's a lot more information than just the, the uh, you know, three bytes of data, you know, C-A-T. Um, but uh, so we already have a type of telepathy in the sense of communicating thoughts to people. But uh, yeah, technologically created one in terms of like a radio signal you sent to other people that was scanning your brains. The question is, are you going to need a better bandwidth out of that? And do you want a better bandwidth? Because our conscious minds, and we usually only want to communicate our conscious minds to people anyway, though we do a lot more through things like body language. 
do not actually run at all that high of a bitrate. I mean, we more or less do think at, uh, you know, the way you might say kilobytes per second in terms of concepts and text. Um, but, you know, you could use it to send an image to somebody, and of course that's gigabytes per second. You know, our eyes are very high resolution even compared to modern cameras. Um, and uh, it's certainly easier if instead of trying to explain something to someone, you just flick them the image, and their brain's very well sorted to handle that bandwidth. So that would be an example of it. But uh, we'll see how people go with that. You know, it's, it's, there's it a comfort zone there even once you get around the technological hurdles. And not everyone's going to have the same one on that. Um, you know, one of our recurring themes on this is that just because you have the technology for that, it's, it, you know, whether or not you, you say, well, do we use it or do we not use it? And say, well, odds are, unless it represents a big threat to everybody or a big bonus to everybody that nobody disagrees about it being a bonus, um, then some people are going to use it and some people are not. And you're going to have a kind of a, a, a I wouldn't say necessarily breaking cultural because it'd be inside the same culture and civilization with these these disagreements too. But you have a kind of a big divergence of what combinations of technologies people find appropriate to use. Um, let's see, Cluckery Duckery asks a question: If you had an aquatic habitat in space, would it still need spin gravity if it was pressurized and full of water? Oh. I would go with yes on that one with the caveat that I am neither a zoologist nor a marine biologist. Um, and I mean, I do not know to how extensively we've tested goldfish and other, uh, you know, other oceanic life forms. And there are so many of them, uh, both plants and animals and bacteria to know how much of a factor that gravity gradient really plays inside the water. But it is there, you know, like marine snow that keeps the lower levels like the abyssopelagic fed. That is totally dependent on gravity, obviously. Um, you probably have more variability in what's okay to use, though, because if all you really need is a gradient that causes things to drop, then a very slow spin might be you know, sufficient so that you only had like the equivalent of moon gravity. On the other hand, it might be really dependent on uh, that. So, you, you know, I think that you would have a pretty big difference if you raised or lowered the gravity in terms of what was optimized to live way on when. So, you know, if you want to mimic Earth's habitat, you probably want to go with 1G, even the ocean, um, simulated ocean, that habitat. But, uh, you know, that would be one of those examples where, especially because water is so heavy and, and that weight's going to be weighing on the shell of that uh, that cylinder habitat, I think you see a lot of experimentation. You know, we don't need, we, we want to have, I, I always say that one of the best uses of, of these O'Neill cylinders is as space, you know, nature preserves. And those you'd want to replicate the native environment of Earth as exactly as you can, and especially any factors you'd identify as being particularly important to, uh, to that, uh, you know, that local uh, ecology. Um, but then after you've got those those nature preserves in place and you can build so many of these things, you might uh, you might just gonna go ahead and uh, do a lot of diversification. You know, see what happens when the gravity's down to half on a, on one of these habitats, and what happens with the uh, the whales and other things like that. Uh, but I would say, in, in general, as loose guess, that uh, ocean environments are less sensitive to gravity changes than uh, than land based life would be. Um, let's see. Alexander Corbos asks, uh, "Why are we all why why are we always expecting aliens to act by incredibly logical principles? But in most sci-fi, there was humans that were just as stupid as today and bogged down by bureaucracy, etc." I would make a joke about a lot of writers having no sense of realism and uh, very little actual acquaintance with how the, how the governmental systems bureaucracies work. <laughs> um, but uh, um, you know, the, the reality is when you're writing up a fictional story you're only ever creating as much layers of it uh, as you need to, uh, to tell a story. And then like one layer right beneath that, you know, you're, you're, you got what you tell them in the book and you want to go maybe one level deeper than that uh, in terms of your world building. And you might go a little bit deeper in some spots, but really more to kind of flush out in your head what's going on with something important to the story. Um, so, you know, you're trying to set up a conflict. There's always any story is going to have a conflict in it. And uh you know, the question is, uh, are you going for one way or it's, it's humanity against some evil aliens, in which case uh, you either have the government back home working very effectively or you're trying to show how we're losing because our own bureaucracy, etc., is, is doing something to hurt us. Or you have the really nice aliens. If you've got really nice aliens in a setting, right? If, if your story is about really nice, logical aliens like the Vulcans, you're not the friendliest of people, of course, because they're wildly logical, but they make good friends and allies and more. Because they have no desire to, you know, hurt you. Um, if you're doing a story about an alien like that, 
you're not going to have a conflict with them that arises from their behavior. So it has to come from your own side. And of course, you don't want your hero, your protagonist, to be, uh, you know, a pain in the butt. You want them to be a good, logical, rational person. So that means that it has to be the the other interlocutors, your ambassador, or your controlling government. They're the ones who have to be incredibly illogical or stupid and irrational. And that is a good indicator, though, of how fiction can really uh, impact the way, ways people tend to look at uh, the world and the potential future, though, is you're writing a story because you want an interesting story, which means it's got conflict, um, you know, whether it's aggressive conflict or you know violent conflict or just, you know, uh, angry discussions going back and forth in the storyline. Um, alternatively, we tend to move towards minimizing conflict a lot in civilization. And so, uh, you know, that's not going to really match up too well with expectations. Um, although some folks would obviously disagree with that comment. Uh, thank you, Anana Guy. Uh, what are your thoughts on AI singularity? We talked about that in the technological singularities episode in the existential crisis series, also way back in year two, I think. Uh, you know, we've almost managed to redo or expand everything from year one. So I suppose that a lot of the year two stuff was all getting filtered in uh, as we're played or replaced because a lot of the first and second year stuff, I, I, I feel like the production values could use a lot of work. Um, and there's a lot of those are my favorite subjects. So I want to redo them anyway because I want to talk about them more. Um, technological singularity. Uh, and I think we did talk about this in Machine Rebellion as well. Um, I don't think you, I mean, the biggest issue I tend to have when people discuss technological singularities is there's this assumption that you turn on a computer that's a little bit smarter than a human one day, and then the next day, it's uh, it's smarter than it was yesterday, and the day after that, it's even smarter, and the day after that, it's another one that's even smarter and smarter and just keeps improving. The capacity to create an artificial intelligence uh, does not necessarily imply that that artificial intelligence is somehow a master at creating a better version. Um, you know, you made the best one you could at the time, presumably, unless you were specifically limiting it. Um, and so it's got to figure out whatever the technological hurdle is to get to that next step that none of you could figure out. And uh, it's not going to just magically know that. That is not how that works. Uh, the ability to scan through Wikipedia real quick to learn all the material on something it doesn't work that way either. You have to incorporate that, put it into practice, test things out, prototype stuff. Um, you know, we've been using whole teams of people on AI, and uh, I would argue that uh, humans have been trying to make a smarter human for tens of thousands of years. Uh, it's not easy. So the idea that you're going to start a technological singularity off that is going to be the only one of its kind, and it's going to wrap the out progress everybody else so you can make another one that was even nearly as good as it, uh, that's the thought that always gets me. That's the, the, the kind of the line that... Uh, many people seem to assume is going to happen with uh, AI that I just don't think is entirely logically, you know, solid uh, or at all, really. I, I think it's it, it's just kind of a mistaken oversimplification of how that works. Um, but uh, are we going to eventually end up with uh, with some sort of intelligence that's way smaller than humans? Uh, you know how I feel about using the word artificial intelligence because I think humans are already artificial intelligences. I think, yeah, of course. I mean, that's the, that's the goal, make people smarter, make people smarter but if you think of your ai as a person then that works too um and uh you know it could be a cyborg or a genetically engineered person or we just get really good at teaching people whatever it is i think if you come back a million years from now you're not going to have people who are as smart as normal humans as the mainstay of that civilization they'd be way way smarter uh <clears throat> but i don't think it's one of those things where it just avalanches like that overnight i, I just don't see that one walking out uh, guys will Aaron asks, Hey Isaac, what do you think about the possibility of some type of plasma based life living on the sun? I, you know, I always find that one interesting stories. I'm trying to think of who has done that. Um, well, Kevin J. Anderson did that in his, uh, saga of the seven sons. He also had, uh, folks that lived on a complete water ward and ones that lived in the cores of gas giants. Um, it's a nice idea, but the thing is chemistry all happens at, certain temperatures because those are the temperatures at which chemicals can actually bond to each other and form complex systems. There was no chemistry going on inside stars, or not, not particularly so. Yeah, everything there is, you don't have proteins in a star. You're not going to get ma macromolecules in a star. It's just not going to happen. Um, now, you could have other universes, theoretically, where uh, where the, the physics was set up so that you could have complex... Um, chemistry going out at the temperatures at which fusion also took place. But again, that's a different universe with different rules. Um, you, I don't even know how you go about engineering something like that either. You could potentially make something that was, you know, made out of tungsten that could survive inside a red dwarf. Uh, 
so maybe that way but again it had to be really really artificial that's not going to evolve naturally <laughs> allergies today um norwegian asks how can we spot a von neumann probe on earth moon uh well if it's a von neumann probe specifically that's very easy to spot because the thing is only sticking around uh long enough to make copies of itself and uh if it only is set to make 100 copies, it lands, makes them, goes away, and you either spot it when it does that or not. Uh, if it's the kind that's just going to stop there and keep building and building until it runs out of raw material, then you, you'll, you'll see that one coming. Um, but I don't think in general you'd launch a Von Neumann probe at a planet, or even a, even like a moon. I think you tend to just send that to an asteroid, because if it's just probing, you know, you don't really need more than one asteroid to make enough probes to hit every every system in the galaxy. And so you'd launch them off in general directions just to kind of speed the process up and turn a lot more into it and make redundancy. So you might have it stop and grab an asteroid that was likely candidate and, and probify that. But that should be about the extent of what you do with that. Uh, i got time for a couple more questions, though. As we mentioned, we'll be doing that Discord chat afterwards. Uh, there'll probably be about a 15-minute delay from when we stop here to when I get in there, by the way. Uh, Pete Roland asks, can life use a radioactive element? Uh, oh, sorry, just did that one. Um... Matthew Sass, thoughts on non-carbon life. Why does it need to be carbon-based? Should we look for anything else? We should always keep an eye out for other things. And it's always popular to say silicon, but you know, you talk to biochemists on this, they're a lot less optimistic about that. But you know, they don't say no, it couldn't happen at all. Um, and again, you you know, what you mean by life? When we say life like this, we mean where could it naturally evolve? Obviously, if we build uh, a computer that's you know like Commander Data from Star Trek, that's a life form. I, you know, they just split hairs to say otherwise at that point. Um, at least in the kind of context that we mean for this, you know, and uh, um, and that's obviously not a carbon-based life form there. So. Um, but we need a lot better modeling. I, that's one of those things where it would be probably more likely to find it in a lab that we actually built the stuff up intentionally to see if it could happen before we'd find it onto the system. I think carbon, carbon and water-based life is the one that makes the most sense to find. It should be the most common. All right. Let's go ahead and hit our last question. Uh, hypersonic monkey brains ass. <laughs> Presuming we master genetic authoring, what is the perfect transhuman and what traits would it have? Hmm. Hmm. I, I would say probably, um, well, when you say traits, I mean, we've seen the big five aspect test uh, that they use as, as an alternative to Meyer Briggs. Um, and it's a lot more accurate in some ways. And there, when it has uh, your openness to new ideas, uh, your uh, conscientiousness in terms of, uh, you know, how, how stick to it you are, um, um, and then your extroversion level. And then that's the acronym I always remember was Ocean. Um, then your, um, what is the A? agreeableness, how uh, likable you are, and then uh, your neurotic traits, the N is for neuroticism. Uh, presumably you want, uh, you know, the, the first few of those to be higher, and uh, I don't know if you actually want agreeableness to be higher, because actually you can have some downsides, you don't want it too low, um, but then of course you presumably want your neuroticism fairly low, but then maybe not, because that can often drive people to be much more, uh, you know, uh, creative or productive in some ways too, but that would seem like if we're talking about traits, uh, mental traits, those would be the ones you'd want to probably work on in trying to enhance uh, in some way. Although, you know, the, you say these things seem like good things, but a lot of times the reverse cases are actually going to have a lot of value too. And uh, especially when you don't have too many of them. You know, if you make a society that's a hyper-conscientious, then suddenly the people who are not very much so can be really valuable for helping you to kind of break out of your ruts and, and, and think about new ideas. Um, which I guess would be on a trade openness. Um, but, uh, there are a lot of those for like that, that it's kind of debatable. Now when you get to like physical traits, uh, obviously it's handy to be smart or fast or, um, you know, smarter in terms of our processing speed, uh, faster reflexes, that'd be a very handy one. But, uh, th that's actually kind of the same thing. There could be potential downsides from sort of enhancements too. Um, but, uh, that's, I don't know, that's, that's kind of debatable on that one. Um, let's try to see if I can pull this thing up to see what the, uh, you know, if it's a trait that we improve that we think we want to have improved, that's probably a good one to enhance. Um, I can't bring up the list of all the people who did super chats this time to thank everybody, but if you did do one of the super chat ones, uh, thank you very much for that uh, donation to that. And uh, again, we're going to go ahead and close out for the day. Uh, if you, uh, I think you've been seeing the schedules we come up. We got of course our episodes on Thursday. We might have one, might have one next Sunday or two, but I'm not sure about that yet. It'll be pretty soon, if not though. 
Uh, anyway, you're welcome to come join us over on the SFI Discord server. Uh, I will continue to chat live if I didn't get to your questions. And uh, we will see you next, uh, next Thursday. So that wraps up our live stream for today, but we are not done yet. As mentioned, we'll be doing an After Hours live voice chat over on the SFIA Discord server, linked in the video description, where you can keep asking me questions live for an hour or so. I'll be in there shortly after the show ends, but if you miss me, feel free to leave questions in the comments on this video and I'll try to get back in this evening to answer them. I hope to hear from you there, but if not, I'll see you Thursday.